welcome to the Child Discipleship Podcast powered by Awana. My name is Melanie, and I am connecting a conversation that we had last week with Robert and Lori Crosby to the conversation we're having today with Dr. Shelley Melia. Both of them came in to help us better equip the church to serve children who have had adverse childhood experiences in their life. They helped us create a resource just for you. And it's on our website, childdiscipleship.com. And it's available for you to walk through. It's our ACES course, and we'll give you insight into the medical understanding from an expert's perspective in the therapy field to then the way these adverse childhood experiences impact the discipleship of that child through experts like Dr. Shelley Melia. Dr. Melia is a dear friend of both mine and Awana, and she brings a practical level of understanding being both an expert in the field of therapy and an expert in discipleship with her role at Dallas Baptist University. Here's that conversation. I know that in my experience and in so many of the leaders that I talk to, um, this feels like a really uh, great area because we want to be able to do something, but so often it's not clear what we can do or it's not clear um, uh, even what we understand about what it means for a child to come into our our churches, into our our small groups, into our ministries and have some sort of traumatic experience. Um, and so I guess, you know, Dr. Amelia, I would open up with the question of as a leader and they're looking at their small group of children that's sitting in their room. Let's, um, let's paint a really vivid picture here. Okay. They are, they're in their large group time. They've done some sort of worship. They've welcomed the kids in. It might've been a really kind of fun activity to get the kids comfortable. Right. And so then this leader is standing at the front of the room looking at a sea of beautiful faces, right? Like what, what, talk to me about the composition of that room, but on average and like how many of those children have probably actually experienced some sort of traumatic event? Right. So I think that we have a tendency to believe that kids who experience traumatic events are not in our churches because those are the kids who've grown up in safe, loving homes. But the reality is, is that we know that even one in six kids has experienced mm-hmm. multiple traumatic experiences. And we know that um, a large number of our kids within our ministries have experienced an adverse childhood experience. So um, when we look out over that sea of faces, um, we almost have to ask the Lord, help me to see them through your eyes. Help me to see what's unseen. Because a child who's experienced an adverse childhood experience doesn't have a name tag that says, hey, I've had yeah. this happen, but their behaviors are going to give you a clue. The way in which they even respond in large group settings is going to give you a clue as to maybe there are some things that have happened in life that are going to impact how they respond to Jesus, how they are able to take faith and make it a part of their life. Yeah. So you brought up a really unique piece there that for some of us, we might have kids that come in who the parents have kind of given us a window of insight. That's like, I'm not going to go into detail, but yes, this child has experienced. So we have that knowledge, 
and others we don't. Um, and how do you, like you mentioned that there's behaviors, like how do you determine what is behavioral and what is trauma? And is that actually the wrong question that we're asking? I think we do have a tendency to focus on the behavior and not the message that the, that the behavior may be sending. And the only way to really know the difference between, is this just childhood misbehavior that maybe I need right. to, or is this a message to me about how they're feeling, um, is to get to know the child, is to see the child on a weekly basis and to know how they respond. I can tell you that um, when I see kids in large groups uh, and I teach five-year-olds, um, I can often see by their body language what's going on. So for instance, mm-hmm. if we talk about, um, in our particular case, our large group rooms where we do music, it's loud, sometimes it's dark, there's kids jumping around and dancing and doing all those things that we think about in children's right. And you may see a child over there, you know, just kind of yeah. doing, and that's a real clue that they're overstimulated, that their trauma yeah. response system may be activated. And so, you know, we might initially think, oh, they're just not participating. I need to get over there and tell them, hey, jump up and do this. But in reality, they may be, that's their way of coping with a feeling that says, I don't think I'm safe in here. I don't think I can trust the people in here to take care of me. And so for a typically developing child, a child without trauma, those really high energy environments may work just fine for them. But for kids uh, who who have their trauma response system kind of overused and so they're hypervigilant, um, they're going to they're going to sort of react in a different way. So we have to be willing to say this isn't about me. This isn't yeah. about that they don't want to participate. This yeah. is that this environment is not working for them. So I may pull a child out and say, hey, would you like to stand outside with me? Or we have a teacher in the room. Would you like to stay in the room with a teacher, with two teachers, obviously? Um, and so sometimes we have to let kids out of those situations that that ramp them up. They have a radar, right? We yeah. have this, uh, scientists call it neuroception, where our brain is mm-hmm. constant scanning for danger every four seconds is what they say and so that's why we can feel danger before we really know how to put words into it you know as a mom feel a dangerous situation and so these kids who've been through multiple traumatic experiences their radar is super super sensitive and so when they're in that big environment their radar may be telling them danger 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 and they're responding in a way um, that is appropriate for the danger that they feel. And so I think sometimes we we want to look at kids as all the same and think they all want loud, they all want dark, crazy lights, all these things. And the reality is some of our kids are not going to thrive in that environment. So that that's sort of one way, I think, that if we watch their body language and in the same way, I can tell when I'm in my small group, I can tell by the way their shoulders are, I can tell by the way they're sitting when they feel at rest, when they when they yeah. feel safe and they know Miss Shelley is here, she's listening. I know what to expect. I have a chair to sit in. I know what she does. I know that we pray. You know, there's this ritual and this routine to what we do, and you can see it in their body. And so sometimes being observant of of their bodies and how they're responding, and this is not always a a, a, a sense of I don't want to participate. It's I can't. This is too yeah. much. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a a really helpful example. Um, uh, I, I would, for me, I, I hear that, and I I think about how much um, you have learned how to both educationally and through experience identify that in a child. And I know that for someone like me, it's like, well, good gracious, I don't have that. But it but it reminds me of. Um, I was, I teach fours and fives as well. And so in, um, you know, I had very much what you've done. I had created this system. Um, we had this kind of the same basic structure where we open and we pray and we sing a song and then we enter into story. Right. And in that song point, we would vary from singing anything from like, Father, I adore you to who's the king of the jungle, right? All of these things that anybody listening that's like, yes, we know, you know, and um, love those songs. Uh, to get to the point, I one week we sang who's the king of the jungle. And of course, um, we got to a point where kind of like when we went through it, you we would whisper and then we would we would yell, right? So it was just a very participatory and I'd never had this problem before, except this one week, we had a child who just stood up, started like scream weeping and, and covering their ears. Um, I'm saying that to protect their identity, right? This child. Um, and and we then had to shift to help this child then regulate back. And it was the first time that it w- it caused me to think like, um, one, I didn't know what caused that, right? It could have been trauma. It could have been overstimulated. Like, I mean, it is overstimulation, but it could have been, um, dysregulation in a different capacity. I, but I couldn't, as a leader, attach that, right? Mm-hmm. I just needed to help in the room, create a space where this child was able to then feel comfortable and safe again. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I wonder, um, what that, what that kind of brought in my mind was all of a sudden, like that was no longer a tool of worship for that child, Mm -hmm. right? That was actually something that was deeply disturbing them. And so, um, can you talk to us more about how can trauma act as a barrier for kids to actually engage in a relationship with Jesus? Sure. So what we just talked about was kind of how um, how the brain responds and how even physiologically a child can respond. But spiritually, when we think about um, how does uh, abuse, how does neglect, how does uh, divorce, how does death, how does any of a number of those what we know as adverse childhood experiences, how does that impact their view of God? because our experiences impact our views and our beliefs. So if we look at the very young child and we know that trust is sort of that foundational um, social emotional need that a child has. And so the way that a child learns to trust people is by having parents and caregivers who meet their needs consistently. And so a child almost begins to have a faith in that parent or a faith in that caregiver, a faith in that that teacher that says, I can count on this person. On the on the opposite side of that, if a child doesn't uh, have someone who's consistently meeting their needs, they don't develop that very basic sense of trust. And so they can grow up thinking that I'm the only one I can trust. I have to look out yeah. for me. So it's hard to connect. So um, 
if if a child doesn't learn how to trust adults, it makes it a little bit more difficult to trust in a God they can't see. If they can't trust the people in their life they can see, it's a little bit harder to trust a God that they can't see. Yeah. And it's, it's not even so much, it is so much that that impacts them as a child, but that those kinds of experiences can impact their ability to continue to trust God as an adolescent and as an adult because in childhood, we sort of have this propensity, this desire, this innate draw towards God. And so we may, a child may be able to, to, to bridge that gap to say, I'm going to try to trust in God, even though I don't really know what that looks like. But then they get a little older and they realize all the things that have happened to them. And then they go back to all the things they've been taught and they think, wait a minute. I remember being taught that God always protects us or that God loves me. And, and yet it, God didn't protect me. And so there's this dissonance as they get older. Um, yeah. And so I think um, we have to realize that, that the adverse childhood experiences impact a child's view of trust and love and even God's power. Um, and so how does that really flesh out? Well, we have to be careful not to portray Jesus as the superhero who always swoops in and always rescues us and always protects us. And I think sometimes in our effort to make faith simple, we forget that when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were about to be thrown into the fiery furnace, they said, we're going to serve God and we believe he can, but even if he doesn't, yeah, we're going to obey him. And so yeah that we we have to teach kids the reality that um, we have to be careful not to send a message that says um, God always protects us to take us like Shadrach, Meshach, and Endo and say, see, boys and girls, God always protects us because there's that child who says, maybe not even when they're a child because they can't put words into it, but maybe when they're an adolescent, but they may say, wait a minute, God didn't protect me from a daddy. God didn't protect me from cancer. God didn't protect whoever, whatever has happened. Therefore, what does that mean? Does that mean God's not real? Or does that mean God doesn't love me, but I'm not doing enough? And so, so somehow we have to, we have to make sure that our theology with kids um, allows for them to navigate a life that hasn't been protected, a life that has been difficult. Yeah. Um, because I think we we want to make it all happy, clappy. Jesus is a superhero. He always protects. He always loves us. And, and he does love us, but he doesn't always protect us. He doesn't always um, pull us out of a situation. We have to we have to learn how to navigate through that. So um, I think that kids who've been through ACEs come to the discussion with either questions they don't yet know how to formulate or questions that say, how do I resolve what you're teaching me with what I've experienced? Yeah. And so that's where sort of the barrier can happen. And so for those of us who've never suffered, for those of us who've never had a traumatic experience, we don't even think about that. Right. We, we just know that God loves us and it, and it feels like God's always protected us and it feels like this really works. But for yeah. people, for kids who've experienced the rug jerked out from under them, who've experienced trauma and abuse, they're already saying, I want to believe in a God who loves me. I just don't know how to reconcile what's happened in my life 
with this God that you're telling me that loves. Yeah. In, in a way, they're inserting into childhood real mature ideas and concepts that often don't get really tackled until maybe like middle school, high school at the earliest. Right. And yet they're coming in with this, like, well, like I've, you know, let's take poverty. Like I, I I've never had my needs supplied for, I've mm-hmm. never had what I actually need. I frequently don't have food. Right. Like, so, right. They're they're all of a sudden stepping into a world where we as leaders, we often, I think, want to help make it feel better. Mm -hmm. We want to help make it feel like we can, uh, well, there's no actual tension there. Mm -hmm. You know, so can you dig into that a little for us? Because it's, it's hard to sit in that tension because the child's right. Like how do you tell a child that like God is good and yet their father died Mm -hmm. and they're like, why would a good God kill my father? Like, or not, you know, protect me from having a, you know, not having a dad. So like, how do we balance that? And especially, especially biblically, you know, Mm -hmm. like how do we lean in and present this, this powerful, loving, justice-oriented God that, um, you know, also recognizes that like this child doesn't experience how we want to teach who God is. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think that's the million-dollar question. Um, and I think um, it requires a certain sense of authenticity, a certain a certain sense of honesty because a child may not be actually able to articulate, Hey, wait a minute. I don't have food, but you're saying that God provides. Right. But in mind they're thinking this doesn't connect. And, and most of the time kids are very egocentric and most of the time right. they will put it back on themselves. I must not be lovable. God must not right. be able to protect me. And so I think acknowledging in some way, in some age appropriate way, that following Jesus um, is still hard. That that being a Christian doesn't mean that we're that we have every hard thing removed. But be, being a Christian means that there's a God who loves me, who promises He'll always be there, and also gives me this community of faith that I'm a part of to help me get through the things that we know are going to happen to us. Uh, and so it requires us to um, to include an age-appropriate theology of suffering in, yeah. in, yeah. in kids to say, look, yep. following Jesus doesn't mean that you're never going to lose your dad. You're never going to go hungry. It just means that following Jesus means that you have a relationship with a God who loves you that and that we have a um, the ability to be in relationship with those around us. Um, and God gives us that community of faith to minister to each other in those times. But I think the danger is we just go, Oh, I don't want to go there. I don't want to, uh, I don't want to talk about the hard things because these are kids. And so it's this right. tension of how much is too much. And so yeah. even let's say in a, a story of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, you know, it's saying, you know, God might not, God did save him. But Shadrach and Abednego knew that that might not happen, but they were willing to be obedient regardless of what, 
you know, what happened. And so sort of dialing into some of the reality of the story, instead of just making it about a rescue, making it about Jesus. Yeah. Being yeah. Uh, because kids are, you know, when you ask kids, what's the difference between us and God, one of the words they always say is he's powerful. Yeah. Right? And so um, we want them to know he's powerful, but that he doesn't always rescue us from the things that we do. And yeah. so, I think that where it really trips kids up, honestly, they don't really know how to how to always say it when they're young. But I think that some of what we're seeing in this deconstruction type movement with our older kids is they get to that point where they look back and they go, you taught me a faith that was more a fantasy than a, mm. re- than a true theology, because I don't know how to I don't know how to make these things work. I don't know how to yeah. make suffering work with this theology that you gave me that said Jesus always protects, Jesus always provides right. of the deal. And and it's not that we're doing that because we want to give them a, a theology that's a little bit weaker. That's just for whatever reason, I think in the Western world, yeah. we, just, we are very individualistic and we're very not used to suffering. We're not used to persecution. Yeah. So I think that's where it trips them up later on if we don't acknowledge the hard yeah. stuff in faith. Yeah. I, man, there's so much wisdom there. And, um, I use this quote from Sam Luce a lot because I, it is just to me so powerful. Um, he says, let's give kids a faith that they can grow into instead of faith that they can grow out of kind of sitting in that place that you were just referring to is where kids can get to a point. Um, and it's almost as if we were assuming that they weren't balancing the tension Mm -hmm. and yet they were the whole time they're feeling this tension. They may not develop mentally be able to say it yet, but they feel the tension between the God they're taught in their church time and how they experience the world Mm -hmm. and what happens. Right. And so you use the words theology of suffering and that connects like to me that connected to the idea of how we talk about how, Jesus is the hope of the world. Mm-hmm. And if we're, he is, let me just say, state that. Okay. Jesus is the hope for the world yet. It's almost feels like they're mutually exclusive that if Jesus is the hope for the world, then we can't really have a theology of suffering because what that means is that I internalize what that hope looks like for me mm-hmm. and how that directly looks in my life. And so I, I want to shift here for a second to the theology of suffering idea. Um, if those that feels like something that is just a regular children's ministry leader, I might be like, hey, that's way above my area. <laughs> like, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, I do because I understand what the words are, but like that hasn't been given to me. I'm not equipped with a theology of suffering. So like I'm out. Right. So like, what is that? What is a theology of suffering and how could a leader, um, like how could a leader find out what that looks like for their church? You know, that's trying to flesh that out. Um, I think reflects the challenge that it is for us as, as Christians to, um, to hold intention, what you just said, the hope of Jesus with the reality of our world. Um, And so I think that 
um, we have to normalize this idea that following Jesus is hard. Yeah. That serving God means making hard decisions. And it doesn't mean that God is going to protect us from everything or rescue from us from everything. And so um, I think in some ways it requires us to be real, um, to be authentic in age appropriate ways. If we even think about corporate worship experiences, um, there's not a lot of lament in our worship songs. There's not a lot of acknowledgement of suffering unless there's a bow to tie on, tie on it at the end, if that makes sense. We we elevate the stories with happy endings and we sort of avoid the stories that are not yeah. that are not happy. And so I think that we have to acknowledge as leaders when we're struggling. Uh, yeah. We, when we go through difficult things, we have to model, hey, I love God and I'm trusting him through this, but this is like the hardest thing I've ever been through. And yeah. I'm struggling and I'm I'm thankful that I have you as my community of faith to help me through it. So modeling it, it's almost like uh, similar to social media. We have this filter where all we show is the highlight reels. If yeah. you're not faithful, our theology yeah. is, is only the highlight reels of Jesus, right? It's... Yeah. It's only the the stories mm. where um, where we emphasize really that happy ending, that um, that powerful move of God. If you look at Hebrews eleven, it talks about the faith chapter. It talks about how faith all these people did these things, but then towards the end, it talks about the ones that were murdered and sawed in two and all those things, and it says and they were faithful. So I'm not suggesting we need to teach kids about kids being sawed in two or anything like that. <laughs> We acknowledge that even in faithfulness, we may face a lot of difficulty. And I don't know that that's the message that we're giving kids. Yeah. So, yeah. Because I think we want, to, we want to market it as something that's easier, something yeah. that is solution based rather than, you know, this is, this is a choice and a lifestyle to follow Jesus regardless of what. Yeah happens with the hope in heaven things are going to be okay they're not going to be okay here yeah so yeah. you know you don't be too heavy either I'm not suggesting that we have this gloom and doom but i do think that maybe we overlook um the struggle and the suffering we don't really name it or, or give away for kids to connect to it even in the terminology that we use hey your moms and dads are picking you up in a few minutes well not all moms and dads are picking up right right, right. So when right. I hear a child, I'm like, well, I don't have a mom or I don't have a dad. And so we have to really think about even the language that we use with kids, um, knowing that really and truly more and more the majority of kids are going to come from uh, dysfunctional homes that don't look like the June Cleaver home. Yeah. yeah. So it seems like a no brainer, but I think we still struggle to be inclusive in the way that we talk about family. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good reminder. Um, and it, it, it creates an opportunity for us to do a couple of things. The first is like for the leader who's like, um, I don't even know what my church believes about suffering. You should go ask, you know, go, go to your church leadership and say, Hey, um, I would just love to know like what are, what, what we teach. Uh, because if we're, if we're thinking that we should teach 
differently in our children's ministries than we do in our main services, then we're, we're doing children a disservice because we're assuming that they're experiencing the world differently. And, and while developmentally they are, they still feel the heaviness of the brokenness of this world. And, and I love what you encouraged us to do, which was that it was, Hey, sit in like who you are with that child. And I'll be the first to admit that I do not come into every Sunday feeling like my heart's just leaping with joy to worship. And, and while I'm not necessarily going to go into the depths with these children of why that is true, I can absolutely say, I don't know about you, but I'm coming into this worship space a little distracted or maybe Mm -hmm. even a little sad. Mm -hmm. And giving opportunities to just like lay that out mm-hmm. and just say, but that doesn't mean that God isn't here. In fact, that's why I'm here mm-hmm. is because I know that in my sadness or in my distraction, that God will come beside me. And so I love that encouragement of like who, who we are as leaders have to help children um, f- feel the real and authentic faith that we have mm-hmm. with Christ. And then that helps them to be able to even say, oh, well, sh- like what you had mentioned earlier, they have that tension of like the God you're teaching me. It doesn't feel like that's the kind of God that would make the situations in my life. You're all of a sudden giving them an example that says like, my circumstances don't dictate how I interact with God. Mm, beautiful. And yeah. I love, I love, I love your encouragement there. So I, I want to lift up for a second because we've been talking a lot about the child who is willing to come into our ministries. Mm-hmm. Like we're talking about the child who is willing to let their parent drop them off and say like, yes, I will stay here that uh, to use what you used earlier, they feel safe enough mm-hmm. for their guardians to leave and for them to stay in this environment. So can you talk to us a little bit about how, how do we as leaders help walk alongside a family whose child might not be ready yet to participate in children's ministry alone right. where, where their guardian can walk away and they stay with us? Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's an individual um, answer and so perhaps one thing that we could do would be to to reach out to that family outside of the classroom and say, uh, for instance, you know, uh, would you like to come see our room? I want to show you our room. There'll be no kids here. I just want to show you our yeah. room, show you the things that we do. I want to show you how we go to large group, kind of giving them a, a, a practice, a, an opportunity to see this space um, and and then see you know, okay, it seems like they, they're open to that or no, he's not quite ready. Um, and so kind of meeting them where they're at, that requires us actually going beyond the boundaries of Sunday morning, potentially. Um, I think it also offers us the opportunity to say to mom and dad, tell me about how um, your child is able to participate in school. What is helpful yeah. to there? Yeah. Um, and, and finding out what works, finding out um, what uh, cues they get. Oftentimes it's a, even a, like a graphic organizer of what's going to happen. Maybe they need to know first we do this and it's a picture and second we do this and it's a picture. 
Um, and so, you know, we can we can point to that. Okay, uh, Melanie, here we are. We're in group time. And after group time, we're going to do you see this picture. What's that? That's snack time. That's what we're doing next. And so you give them predictability. Yeah. Uh, and then also maybe even finding ways to penetrate into the home with content, whether that be through um, through video support, through um, uh, things that we mail, uh, a package that we might take that has the craft in it for that day. Um, I, I think just taking a step towards them sends a really strong message that um, that I see you and I want you to know that I want you to be uh, a part of what we're doing here. And so sometimes just that that connection, sometimes um, it's putting into place other things. I have a little boy that every once in a while has a really hard time and and doesn't want to come in. And I'll say, would you like me to get mom's phone number and put it on your sticker and and I will call her and it's like that's what he needs it's just to yeah. know that Billy's going to call my mom and he'll come in or maybe it's I need to have Legos there this is the same child he likes Legos so I have Legos on the table hey come on in I've got Legos I'm going to get your mom's number and yeah. those types of things and so we have to be willing to bend I think towards them um, and treat them individually rather than this yeah. is the classroom works love it or leave it you know and we would yeah. never we would never say that but our behavior might say that mm. when we are frustrated, when we when we feel like it's a personal thing. Why, why won't this child come in? I'm always here. They know me. They love me. Well, it's not about you. It's about creating that environment where they feel safe. So it may be sort of a desensitizing type thing where we're going to introduce ourselves to him. Then we're going to ask him to come on a yeah. Wednesday see our classroom and then maybe we're going to have a friend or a relative there a parent with them and so um, I think meeting them where they're at and helping them to know that um, Miss Shelley is a person who's trying to understand me she loves yeah. me that's yeah yeah that's uh the way you broke that down is so uh important in that one the the child gets to lead here mm-hmm. and this isn't personal I love how you broke that. This isn't about you. So like, let's not make it about the classroom that it's like, well, sorry, this is what we're doing. So if you can't engage here, like that has, man, that's just not even close to the problem. Uh, You know, like, I love your, your way of like equip that child one connect with that parent, but then also like give them something to do in church you know, like encourage the parent, bring them to the classroom every time. And perhaps maybe that's where they get this little kit that they get to take to church, but they're connecting that safety and equipping of discipleship, even in the large service to this particular classroom. Or like you said, you know, if you're the teacher, like you saying, it's okay, you don't have to come here yet, but I brought something for you and I'd love for you to tell me, or, and maybe they're not there yet, but just creating those bridges, those opportunities for kids to, um, to walk. There's no meeting on that bridge in a sense, right? Like that child has to walk fully across that space and be prepared themselves, but you certainly can help to provide things that that give them triggers of, oh, I think this is going to be okay. I'll take another step. I think this is safe. I'll take another step. Um, okay. So my last question for you would be, um, we've had a lot of conversation around, 
just how this fits in theologically uh, to what we believe in our faith, um, how traumatic events particularly, uh, you know, just keep us from understanding and interacting with the love of Christ. So I'd, I would say, what is one thing that you would encourage a leader who's l- listened to this, who's walked through this, this information and said, okay, I don't have capacity to do a lot, but I could do one thing. What would you say is that one thing? Well, to be, to be super simple, show up, right? Show up consistently, um, recognize that um, the relationship that they need from you um, is the foundation for teaching them about God. Um, and so we want to make sure that we create an environment where they feel connected. And so, um, you know, the number one job of the brain is to keep us alive and safe. And the number one fear of the brain is disconnection. Mm-hmm. And so Kurt Thompson says our deepest drama is that we are looking for a face that is looking for us. You think about that child that comes to you is looking for a face that's looking for them. And so show up and see them, get on their level, connect with them. Connection comes before content, before discipleship. Knowing that you have to offer a child is very, very simple your time and your connection. And when you do things, you're setting the stage for everything else. Um, In our churches, sometimes what we do is create environments that actually make a child feel feel, feel, feel fearful rather than at rest. And when we have rotating teachers, when we have large groups that are chaotic, when we have um, loud music and those types of things. Um, sometimes that is actually setting off the alarm in their in their bodies and in their minds that, that God gave them. God gave them a brain that says, when there's danger, I need to respond. And these mm-hmm. kids are simply responding to the brain that God gave them. And so so we have to create environments where, where kids do feel safe. And we have yeah. to notice that. And so sometimes I think we have to we have to look at what we're doing and make sure um, make sure that it matches their needs. And the the people that are watching this are are the people who do want to connect, the people who do want to serve, and who are already doing things. And then then we have other people that don't yet know that's what they need to do. And so in our we have to not only show up, we have to speak up for kids and say, hey, it's more important that we have consistent leaders in the children's classroom than we have people in the coffee bar. Then we have people driving a golf cart to welcome everybody. And we've got to raise the level of importance yep. what we do and recognize the hard work of discipleship always travels the road of relationship. Mm-hmm. And relationships requires to show up, require us to the, the life of a child into the life of a family on a consistent basis. And so um, that would be my, that would be my thing. Relationships, connection. Yeah. Showing. 
Yeah. Uh, anybody that may not have been at the Child Discipleship Forum last year, Dr. Melia was one of the faculty who spoke and she shares a really beautiful story about a particular girl that she has walked through and discipled um, over the course of, of her time um, as a leader in her church. And if you uh, it, it really hits on what she's talking about right now, where relationship is required for you to really be able to dig into then helping that child know, love, and serve Jesus in a way that, um, you know, follows throughout their entire life. So you should go check out that conversation on childdiscipleship.com because it will take you even another 30 foot deep into this idea of if you only have one thing you can do and that's build relationship. Um, this is a great example of how to do that. So go check out that conversation. It's there. Um, she's got some more incredible wisdom from you from her talk last year. Um, uh, but in the meantime, Thank you so much, Dr. Melia, for your time. Um, your, your just perpetual wisdom. It's, it's clear that the Lord has created you for this specific work of, of blending the space between what we, what we experience and how that looks in our discipleship to Jesus. So thank you for equipping us and thank you for continuing to lead us in this way so that children, no matter what they've walked through, have opportunity have opportunity to feel the love of Christ. The Child Discipleship Podcast is powered by Awana. Thanks to the donations of generous folks like you, Awana partners with 62,000 churches in 130 countries to make resilient disciples. When you give to Awana, you are investing in lasting faith. Young people who will engage the culture with the gospel and fearlessly lead the church into the future. To make a donation to this mission, go to awana.org donate. Subscribe to the podcast today so you never miss an episode and check out the show notes of today's episode for relevant links from this conversation, as well as information about other podcasts from Awana. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.